The following talk was originally podcast on May 29th, 2020. Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintika in Austin, Texas. Buddhism is widely known throughout the world as a religion of peace and kindness. It's less known as a religion of gender equality. And in fact, many Buddhists are taught that women, because of their karmic dispositions, are incapable of awakening or of becoming a Buddha, at least without first becoming reborn as men. Relatively few women have gone down in Asian history as teachers, yogis, and thinkers. The great Indian scholar monks were exactly that, monks. And the ordination and transmission lineages tracked in East Asia list one man after another. The Theravada tradition managed completely to have misplaced its order of fully ordained nuns, and the Tibetan tradition never had one, leaving a decidedly lopsided sangha throughout much of Asia, and very limited opportunities for women to receive the support and respect that nourishes the highest aspirations of the Buddha Sangha. Moreover, the Buddha himself has been commonly implicated in this bias, though I will argue unjustly. For instance, although he created a twofold sangha of both monks and nuns, he said to have done so reluctantly. He seems to have created a degree of in inequality for the nuns relative to the monks. Nonetheless, that the Buddha would harbor the slightest bit of ill will toward women flies in the face of the complete awakening of the Buddha, which entails that he was utterly pure of thought, kind, and well disposed to a fault, completely without defilement or bias of any sort toward any living being. It's true that the authenticity of many of the most controversial passages in this regard in the early scriptures have in fact been questioned in modern scholarship. I want in a series of two talks to ask, what did the Buddha think of women? Or what was the status of women in the early Buddha Sasana? This has strong implications for our modern situation. The strongest impression that shines through in the discourses repeatedly is, in fact, that of a Buddha who had nothing but the deepest kindness and respect for women, in stark contrast to the patriarchal standards of the society in which he lived. I think the evidence here overwhelms any allegations of unkindness toward women on the part of the Buddha. Let's consider the evidence. The Buddha would have been totally incapable of misogyny. Misogyny is a form of ill will, and to harbor ill will would belie his awakening and everything he taught about the three fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, and the training in kindness, metta, and compassion. No species is exempt as an object of kindness, 
as non-harming to all sentient beings is advocated. Consistently, the Buddha's message and training are of boundless kindness and compassion toward all beings, even those who have done great harm, such as King Ajatasattu, who had killed his own father to seize the throne, yet was taken on by the Buddha as a disciple. Given this boundless kindness toward all beings, certainly he had boundless kindness toward women. We find in the case of the Buddha a detailed view, almost unique among social historical figures of Buddha's social views. Although the Buddha was not a rabble-rouser in the way Jesus seems to have been, that is, he was not actively engaged in upturning Indian society, the Buddha was the engineer of the monastic Sangha, in which he created forms and norms afresh to fashion what for him would have been the ideal society. For instance, in the Sangha, he eliminated the caste system altogether and established a consensus democracy with little hierarchy and no centralized authority outside of himself, of course, in the beginning. It is within the monastic Sangha that we indeed discover his active promotion of the interests of women and the leveling of the disadvantages women would otherwise expect in ancient Indian society. For instance, the Buddha addressed what was apparently a widespread distrust of women in his day. The monk's monastic code makes explicit the Buddha's trust of women to offer testimony as witness to possible sexual transgressions by monks. Accordingly, we found the two indefinite aniyata rules in the monk's patimoka, the master list of rules that monks follow, that explicitly require consideration by any sangha of the testimony of trusted women. Apparently, the norms of the prevailing folk culture was to dismiss the testimony of women. Getting to the core issue of Buddhist practice, the Buddha stated unequivocally that women have the same potential for each of the four levels of awakening that men have. Women, Ananda, having gone forth, are able to realize the fruit of stream attainment, or the fruit of once returning, or the fruit of non-returning, or full awakening. In an early text, we have an even clearer statement of the complete irrelevance of gender to attainment. This tells of the nun Sona's encounter with the demon Mara, who characteristically tries to dissuade her from the path, in this case claiming a woman cannot attain awakening. Unknown to him, Sona had already attained awakening. Sona, knowing better, replies, What does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well, when knowledge flows on steadily as one sees correctly into Dharma? One to whom it might occur, I am a woman, or I am a man, or I am anything at all, is fit for Mara to address. The Buddha elsewhere attests to the great number of fully awakened women disciples. The Buddha created a parallel nun's order probably about five years after the start of the monk's order. Although there was a rare precedent in some of the Jain schools, the founding of the far more deliberately constituted Buddhist nun's order must have represented a radical breakthrough 
in opportunities for women's religious practice. And there is a clear statement in an early Buddhist discourse at the end of his life that the founding of the nun's order was his intention from the time of his awakening. Not only did nuns' ordination in Buddhism give women the opportunity to opt out of a life under an oppressive patriarchal system, but to partake in almost equal partnership with their monk brothers in the third gem, which, in the time of the Buddha, must have been an enormous honor. It meant that the Sangha, in which all Buddhists, both men and women, take refuge, would now consist of both monks and nuns, and that both lay women and lay men would honor and pay homage to a woman's Sangha. This must also have been a courageous decision given the standards of Indian society and the practical concerns it brought for the protection of the nuns in a difficult and hazardous way of life. The Buddha took care like a wise parent to protect nuns from the dangers of the itinerant ascetic lifestyle. Physical dangers came from assault by highwaymen and cads. More gentle dangers to the nun's practice came from the fellow who, through slatter of charm and sumptuous gift of meal, undertook to overcome a few of her most irksome vows. The Buddha thereby built protective measures into the monastic rules, the patimokkha, in order to secure for the nuns, in spite of their vulnerability, the same opportunities on the path of practice enjoyed by the monks. Examples of such protective rules are, should any bhikkhuni, which is the word for the fully ordained nun, go among villages alone, or go to the other shore of a river alone, or stay away for a night alone, or fall behind her companions alone. It entails initial and subsequent meetings of the community. This means it counts as a serious transgression in the monastic code. And again, should any bhikkhuni lusting, having received staple or non-staple food from the hand of a lusting man, consume or chew it, it entails initial and subsequent meetings of the Sangha. Again, a serious offense. Likewise, special rules for the monks, who, though limited by vow, are themselves often subject to the same flames of lust, regulate their interactions with nuns. For instance, should any bhikkhu, by arrangement, get in the same boat with a bhikkhuni going upstream or downstream, except to cross over to the other bank, it is to be confessed. The Buddha also took care to protect the nuns and monks from falling into conventional gender roles with respect to each other, to the disadvantage of the nuns. We find rules in both patimokas to inhibit this. The nun's patimokha, in one instance, contains the rule, Should any bhikkhuni, when a bhikkhu is eating, attend to him with water or fan, it is to be confessed. Most often it is the monk who is subject to the rule. For instance, should any bhikkhu have a used robe washed, dyed, or beaten by a bhikkhuni unrelated to him, it is to be forfeited and confessed. There are a number of such rules. 
It's instructive to observe, however, that nuns in modern Theravada countries who are not fully ordained as bhikkhunis and therefore fall outside of these original rules, by convention fall precisely into the willing role of serving monks, exactly as the Buddha clearly feared. In the suttas, the Buddha explicitly extolled the accomplishment of the bhikkhunis. A handful of awakened nuns are found in the discourses, teaching in the Buddha's stead, alongside a handful of awakened monks. Venerable Dhammadina is the foremost among these. Her name means giver of the Dharma. The Teragati, a section of the Kudika Nikaya in the suttas, is a collection of poems composed by early awakened nuns, said to be the earliest canonical text in all of the world's religions, dealing firsthand with women's spiritual experiences. In fact, the Buddha's and his early disciples' promotion of women's practice seems to have been wildly successful in early Buddhism. The record of King Ashoka, the 3rd century BC emperor of much of India and a great exponent and supporter of Buddhism, gives us a unique snapshot of the state of Buddhism in India two centuries after the Buddha, through his edicts issued as stone inscriptions. In these earliest written texts related to Buddhism, many contemporary monks and nuns are named for their accomplishments as teachers, scholars, and workers of good. Ashoka's own daughter, the nun venerable Sangamita, is said to have founded the nun Sangha in Sri Lanka. What is striking is how prominent the nuns are in these inscriptions, apparently appearing almost as often as monks. This is evidence for King Ashoka's high regard for the nun Sangha, for the achievements of the early nuns, and for the Buddha's compassionate and wise cultivation of the conditions conducive to the nuns' practice in an otherwise generally unsupportive cultural environment. I should note that the ancient suttas and the Winaya are not entirely reliable texts, having passed through both oral and orthographic transmissions and suffering from faults of memory, embellishments and insertions, deletions and other edits along the way. Modern techniques of textual analysis are useful in sorting the authentic from the inauthentic, but no particular passage can ever be proven to be actual words spoken by the Buddha. In fact, the inconsistencies in the vast early scriptures are great enough that by cherry-picking relevant passages, one could attribute almost any position to the Buddha one wants. Ultimately, it's important to keep in mind the overall coherence of the Dharma as a whole. There are specific passages in the early Buddhist scriptures that have led some people to different conclusions, so let me talk about some of these. Here's an isolated statement attributed to the Buddha in the early discourses that uh, seems to disparage women. Venerable Sir, what is the reason that women neither come to the limelight nor doing an industry see its benefits? 
Ananda, women are hateful, jealous, miserly, and lack wisdom. As a result, they neither come to the limelight nor do an industry and see its benefits. Whoa, where did that come from? Does that sound at all like the kind, nurturing Buddha we met a few minutes ago, from whom women clearly do come to the limelight? In fact, this exchange is tacked awkwardly onto the very end of a sutta, which begins with the theme of non-sensual thoughts, non-hateful thoughts, non-hurting thoughts, and right view. And furthermore, seems to bear, suspiciously, no relationship whatever to anything else in the sutta. It just pops up. As mentioned, the ancient suttas have a complex history with much editing and insertion often by lesser minds long forgotten. We have to conclude that such a remark, not common in the suttas, was a later insertion by a benighted monk, perhaps a new monk with a grudge, recently jilted by his girlfriend, and not the words of the Buddha. We have to take care in our reading. It's also important that we not project intentions into circumstances that we might not understand. For instance, we'll discover that many early passages discourage monks from contact with women, from looking at them, from talking with them, from touching them, and from entering into a secluded place with them. For those unfamiliar with the nature or functions of the Buddhist monastic practice, this sometimes initially suggests misogyny, clear and simple. But this has nothing to do with gender bias at all. Celibacy is a challenging aspect of monastic practice and requires some practical distancing. The nun is expected to avoid contact with men in exactly equivalent ways. Another example in which the Buddha might seem to disparage women is the Buddha's often referenced statement that a woman cannot become a Buddha. On the surface, this seems to place a limit on a woman's spiritual attainment, but the context reveals that this does not contradict women's equal potential for awakening at all. In early Buddhism, a Buddha is not only an awakened one, but also someone who has the particular and very rare historical role of restoring Buddhism to the world so that others can achieve awakening. Only once in many eons a Buddha arises in the world, discovers the truth that no one can teach him, and then propagates that truth so others can share that Buddha's awakening, thereby getting the ball rolling again. There is no question in the early scriptures that women can be arahants or fully awakened. That is, they can share the Buddha's awakening. The claim must therefore be that only a man can be an original teacher. The context provided in the relevant passage confirms this, in which parallel statements are made about universal monarchs and deities who bear influence in the world. It's, it's impossible, impossible that, that a woman, woman should be the Buddha. It is possible that a man should be the Buddha. It's impossible that a woman should be the universal monarch, the king of gods, Mara, Brahma.
Now, being an original teacher requires a number of personal qualities beyond awakening, including charisma, physical stature, skill in exposition, a nurturing attitude, aptitude for strategic planning, a low, booming, and articulate voice, and so on. Which qualities are relevant is largely determined by the society in which he lives, so that a patriarchal society, for instance, one with little regard for feminine qualities, would not produce feminine original teachers, universal monarchs, or maras, any more than a society which values thick heads of hair will produce bald televangelists. In short, The Buddha's statement, I submit, is more about the society in which the Buddha lived than about women. It's also been pointed out that nuns must follow a greater number of monastic rules than monks. The Theravadapati Mokha, the master list of rules, enumerates 227 rules for monks and 311 for nuns. And other Winaya traditions reveal similar proportions. This is often cited as evidence for gender bias. Actually, this also lends itself to the opposite interpretation of entrusting nuns with a deeper level of practice. After all, monks follow more rules than laypeople. In fact, the reasons for the extra rules are complex and diverse and do not admit of any conclusion in this regard. The primary reason for the rule count differential seems to be that the nun's patimokkha was compiled at a later date than the monk's patimokkha. Each represents a kind of snapshot of a moving target, one earlier than the other. In fact, the body of rules prescribed by the Buddha seems to have grown constantly over a long period of time. Some of these rules specific to monks and some specific to nuns, but the bulk of them the same or equivalent for both groups. Each patimokkha, because it's a kind of masterless serving for memorization and group recitation, seems to have been closed to further additions at a certain time, even as the rules imposed by the Buddha continued to grow. First the monk's patimokkha was closed, and then the newer nun's patimokkha. This gave us two snapshots, the second showing a bigger set than the first, so that, in fact, many rules prescribed by the Buddha for both monks and nuns elsewhere in the Winaya are listed in the nuns patimokkha, but missing in the monks. Differing but complementary rules also protect the nuns from potential gender-associated vulnerabilities in their interactions with monks and laity, as we discussed earlier. Also, the origin stories of the rules reveal that a number of rules that apply only to nuns arose from complaints lodged by nuns against the behavior of other nuns. Finally, the nuns also have more rules specifically regulating sexual conduct. A body of rules for each order not only enforces celibacy, but also sets clear limits to avoid compromising situations and to maintain propriety in this critical aspect of monastic practice. However, the nuns' circumstances are stricter in this regard, probably because the nuns are easily subject to male aggression and are able to become pregnant. 
consider how well-intentioned modern parents generally subject their teenage daughters to more oversight than they do their sons. The Buddha seems to have shared this attitude. I conclude that the Buddha that shines forth from the suttas is one of complete purity of purpose, always looking for the benefit of all, really all, and incapable of even the slightest hint of bias or unkind thought. This is a Buddha that must make the most feminist in the Buddhist community smile. But we're not done. There's a particularly problematic passage in the early scriptures that is highly influential throughout Asian Buddhism, constantly cited in modern discussions of women in Buddhism. This passage describes the genesis of the nun Sangha. In particular, it describes a Buddha who only reluctantly began to ordain nuns and only after imposing a set of eight strict conditions that were not imposed on monks. Moreover, the Buddha at the end of this passage predicts that as a result of allowing women to ordain, the sasana will not last long. Next week, I'll relate this account and talk about my own theory of what is going on here. I argue that when placed in its cultural context, the intention behind this account is not misogynistic at all. In fact, quite the contrary. It reveals how great a challenge the culture in which the Buddha lived presented to establishing a nun's order and how far the Buddha was willing to go and how much risk he was willing to take to ensure equitable practice opportunities for women. Wait, wait. I have to tell listeners about a series of 10 upcoming podcasts beginning June 19th. I plan to provide a broad introduction to Buddhism called Mindfulness Where Dharma Meets Practice, which will highlight the role of mindfulness in the range of Buddhist practice and understanding. These talks are based, like my other talks, almost exclusively on earliest Buddhist texts, which is as close as we can determine what the Buddha actually taught. These talks will provide a concise and accessible introduction for new students of Buddhism, but may also carry some surprises for advanced students. The series of podcasts will be based on my introductory textbook of the same name, Mindfulness Where Dharma Meets Practice. A parallel video course can also be found on YouTube. Links to all of these resources can be found on my website, bhikkhuchintita.wordpress.com. That is my name, bhikkhuchintita, written as one word, dot wordpress.com. As always, please feel free to contact me with questions at bhikkhu.chintita at gmail.com. I hope you'll be able to join us for these 10 short but highly informative talks.